0: Welcome to the Outer Realm with Michelle DeRoche and Amelia Passano. Airing live on the United Public Radio Network, 105.3 FM in New Orleans.
1: Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Thursday night segment of The Outer Realm. We are broadcasting live on the United Public Radio Network UFO, Paranormal Radio Network 105.3 and 107.7 FM from the beautiful city of New Orleans. We are fully sponsored by the amazing people over at Folgers Coffee who have been a part of our journey since the very beginning. So thank you, Folgers. We couldn't do it without you, nor would we want to. Also, big thank you to Justin Snicker, a.k.a. Dr. Snick, the sonic surgeon, for his contribution of his time, his music and his voice for the intro that you just heard and the outro that doesn't get played as often as we'd like. Uh, as we just usually make it right to the very end. So thank you to him. You can find all of his music on your favorite streaming music platforms. And note that he is an award-winning composer who specializes in Halloween horrors, sci-fi, and dark wave electronic music. Also, big thank you to Steve McGinnis, the artist behind the banners and logos here at The Outer Realm check him out on Facebook and Instagram. Also specializes in the horror genre, but does phenomenal commission pieces. You can do comic books, graphic novels, you name it. This guy does it. So big, happy Thanksgiving to all of our friends and listeners. And of course, you know, our producer, Joe Montaldo, um, owner of the station out of New Orleans. So big, big, big happy Thanksgiving to all of you happy guys, turkey Hope- and ham day. I know. I'm I'm <laughs> thinking I, I've had a, a couple of hosts message me today going, I'm thinking I'm in a food coma. I'm dying and we're not done yet. That's <laughs> like, it's That's, not good, but must it's be nice because I'm fun.
0: starving over here.
1: <laughs> I know. So it's like, wow, excellent. And Nutella
0: for lunch and dinner, like together <laughs> at the same time.
1: So big, big, big happy Thanksgiving. And um, yeah. But we oh, have one, so one trooper, one trooper out of all this, and that's Dr. Arlen Andrews Sr. Who's taken the time to be with us to discuss the Thaw trilogy series. Um, this is gonna be really interesting because we don't normally you know talk a whole lot about um with, with fiction. Um, authors and so on, not because we didn't like to, but because we have so many other shows on the network who do just that sort of thing, but what was different about it is that he wrote the book or the, this trilogy after he had been to Peru, and if you guys remember him from the mm-hmm. last show um, where he talked about the I, I always pulverize this word k- k- killer rum. Mayoc, maybe that makes sense. The Last Secrets of the Shadow Machine, which was yeah. an ancient enigma of Peru revealed. So I, I had to bring this up to read it because clearly it's an issue with my trying to pronounce it. But it, <laughs> I know, right? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. It just doesn't not roll off the tongue. But it left enough of a mark on him that he basically decided to write this series. And it's going to be interesting because it's sort of post ice age and, and things like that, but we're going to get into a lot of different things perhaps as to what would future, you know, civilizations or generations think if, if we actually were living through this sort of thing and what do we think as a people, when we think back to all of these things that are surfacing now, ancient civilizations and things like that. So I thought, you know what, this is going to be super interesting because it's it's just something that we all kind of wonder about. I mean, I,
0: right? I posted something on our page regarding finding a burial of a Merovingian. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and I can't remember the rest of it. So, because I wasn't, <laughs> to talk about. you know, me and my memory because of my meds. It's like.
1: <laughs> my if meds. You, oh, if meds. you
0: need yeah. someone to vent to and forget what you said, tell me. That's why my confidentiality <laughs> works so well because I can't remember a damn thing. I think that God made me that way or whoever made me that way because of the work that I do. I have to oh, be confidential. So absolutely, <laughs> I Remember, absolutely. That I posted it today. But <laughs> it's um, yeah, you just ask for some go, I don't know. But like how there's not supposed to be any more um of these tombs, these graves, and they found there. it intact. They're
1: there, everything. Sure. So I posted
0: it on our page. Take a look at it. Not now. Take a look at it after. Yeah, after if- the show, I'm, I'm going to go look at it
1: because look? that's. Yeah, that's 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 some history. Well, I I know quite a bit about this history, so this will be really. Fabulous.
0: I get a lot of my stuff from Ancient Origins, but I check everything. I, um, I have
1: a membership with them. I, I love, love them. them. I yeah. learn
0: so much from them because I'm trying yeah. to keep up with our guests because this is all new to me. Right. So I have a membership with them and I get that newsletter and I posted that article. You're welcome. <laughs> 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 because, because you have to pay to read this. So I right. share it with everybody <laughs> on the page because I thought it was really interesting, you know, to. To see something like that and and to have been told for years and years and years that this doesn't exist and that, well, that fits. And they go back
1: to tonight. Ren the Le Chateau. Let's spin off of what we were talking about last night. There's a huge yeah. moving in a whole whole culture and history that surrounds them with Ren the Chateau. Among many areas, but especially out in the Languedoc area of the south of France. So it's yeah really, it's really just, fascinating stuff, especially when it comes to run the Chateau for it's, know, many different it's reasons. It's just
0: crazy, right? Like yes, it, ancient yeah. origins, yes, Frankish warrior grave, armed to the teeth, Frankish warriors untouched grave found. Mm. So I I, like I think that. it's fantastic. And yes. I like the article. And like I said, if you know, if you're interested, subscribe to them or you know, they they have a lot of really well researched pieces that they share and they email them to you.
1: Yeah, so. they're they're excellent. I I've, I've been a subscriber of theirs um for a pretty long time, actually, especially researching stuff for the grey zone. Uh I'll tell you, like there's so much information there. Yeah. Um, that it's worth and you can free-
0: com- yeah. yeah it's awesome and you can you can mark them so that you read it later if yep. you don't have the time and you're interested you just click read later and they hold yep. it aside for you on your yep. account so i really like it yeah but i enjoy it i enjoy learning a lot of some stuff yeah i'm not gonna lie it's like no 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 but some this one goes, caught my eye depth. because of yesterday's show
1: yes yeah yeah and we are just waiting for our guests to come in guys so we're not just trying yeah. to, to. I be, look like um... Casper
0: the Friendly Ghost.
1: Okay, hold like, on a minute here. So white. Requesting. Any... Okay, so there it is. Yeah, sent it. Off sent it.
0: Okay. So sent... that was very nice of him to be on tonight.
1: It is Thanksgiving. He goes, "Oh my goodness, it's Thanksgiving," and people are like, "Well, oh, you're live on Thanksgiving." But it, it, again, it's to remember this too is we have a huge, huge listenership, and it's from all over the world. I mean, we have people from all over the world who aren't th- celebrating Thanksgiving. This is American Thanksgiving. Canada had, you know, had theirs in um, October, October. Even though we so, have many
0: messages wishing us a happy Thanksgiving.
1: Yeah, so. You know, we, we, have, have, we, we actually hold.
0: had it years before the States, too.
1: <laughs> I know. <laughs> like so Almost 100.
0: I, just saying. <laughs> I
1: know. I know. There's so much stuff I want to talk about. like, mm-hmm. And, and I, I can't get ahead of myself <laughs> because we have to wait for him to arrive and, and start talking. But, man, I love really ancient history. And I love to research it. And when mm-hmm. you're getting into things that are pre Ice Age, just talking about things that's Ice Age related is tough because, you know, we've got this religious conditioning that are kind of going I was what? just going to
0: say, but there's so politics. Yeah.
1: yeah. But there's so much stuff that is out there and surfacing. It's just fantastic. Oh, and our guest of honor is I just. I don't popping understand. In.
0: Okay yeah
1: so are you ready arlen
2: iphone but on my laptop all hey. I see is myself
1: this is great oh. we can hear you we can see you this is
2: fantastic
0: you can't see us though
2: i do see you, I see oh, you oh,
0: Yay. Excellent. how are you happy thanksgiving happy thanksgiving
2: Thank you. I'm full of turkey right now. So don't fall asleep on us because we know, I know what happens. Yeah, yeah,
1: Everybody wants to sleep after turkey dinner. yep,
3: yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, welcome to the show. This is your second time with us, and we're so pleased that you are you've decided to come and uh spend part of your Thanksgiving with us. There's a lot of people from all over the world who'll be listening, who don't have Thanksgiving, so they're always happy to tune in. And you're going to be talking about the Thaw Trilogy, which is interesting to me because it's just out of the norm for us. But when you mentioned that you wrote it after you've been to Peru, everything started to make sense.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: So why don't you start with, um, do you want to touch? Let's touch for those who haven't yet gone to the archive to watch the Peru show, people. You're going to have to go back and find it. But why don't you touch a little bit on your discovery um, in Peru and what led you and inspire you to write this series?
2: Okay. Uh, Long story, pretty short. The entire long story is in the book a book called Kia Romeo lost secrets of the shadow machine. Yes. in 20 in 2012, I was in Peru and I, by accident came across a uh, sculpture that was carved into the side of a big rock, about a mile from the highway. It's a sculpt. It's a rainbow shaped sculpture about eight and a half feet wide, three feet high and two feet deep. It had a lot of uh, markings along the side and there was no, uh, there were no references to it. Even that night later when we returned to Cusco, I couldn't find any references on the, the internet except the fact it's there. Nobody knew what it was. There were no books about it. Uh, nobody knew if it was just an ornamental uh, symbol of some sort or mm-hmm. if it had a meaning. Well, as an engineer, when I see people going to a lot of trouble t- to carve something into the side of a big rock, mm-hmm. big limestone rock, I figured it must have a purpose because it's right. out of reach. Not many people can see it. Uh, when you get up close to it, it's pretty crudely chopped chopped in place. But when you get back about 20, 30 feet from it, it's beautiful. It's nice and pretty. I, I call it the stone rainbow. They call it Kia Rumiyak, which means this, the stone that belongs to the moon. Wow. So as an, so as an engineer, I uh, had some measurements made of it. I made some computer models. And I say, well, now, if the shadows in this thing are meaningful, that might mean it's a calendar. I thought it was a solar calendar. My first impression, it was a solar calendar. Now, with my model, I was able to bring up the sun at any time, any year, up for the last 2,000 years. Wow. Uh, computer uh, modeling is really great. And I was able to determine that this machine, I call it the shadow machine because of its shadows, it would tell you when there was an equinox and a solstice, beginning of the year, the middle of the year, three quarters mm-hmm. of the year, and that the ancient people could use this just by looking at it. A trained person could look at it and tell when the year began and where the year ended and the halfway through each quarter as well. And so uh, that would be very important to people who uh, raise crops. They need to know when the crops need to be harvested, when they need to be planted, when the new year was in the fall. And Mm -hmm. so with my computer models, approximate models, I was able to prove to my satisfaction that this works. And in fact, on the solstice, there are half a dozen phenomena that occur during this four-day period. Mm -hmm. They call it the standstill of the sun, which they still celebrate in Peru. It's called Inti Rami. Rami is, or Inti is their god of the sun. Right. celebration. So during the celebration of the sun for four days in Peru, in the in the June solstice, June twenty uh, first to twenty fifth
3: roughly. Right.
2: P- Peru is a big party. Right. Street, street parades, noise twenty four seven, a lot of drinking. And uh, my brother and I went there. Uh, They're very
1: festive, the Peruvians. <laughs> right.
2: And uh, so, but the thing is nowhere in any archaeological things that I could ever find in a couple of years of searching that I ever find a technical paper written about it or any analysis that showed what I found so right. I'm claiming that I'm the, the discoverer of the purpose of Kia Romeo and I hope someday to get a professional archaeologist to agree with me and let publish a paper And I think the, the thing should be a, a a UNESCO United Nations World Heritage Site Right. right now Right now, it's basically ignored. And uh it should be, as, to be as famous as Machu Picchu or these other places. Right. And right now. Because right now, cause cause, it's
1: just off of a highway, isn't it? Like, it's just.
2: Like, it's a little town called San Miguel de Porres. Right. The, there's a little town there that's dirt poor. And I would love to see tourism. Yes. Tourism's not going to bother anything because you can't get to it. It's eight feet up. I mean, I climbed up to it. You've got a picture of me there sitting in it, which you're yes. not supposed to do. Yes. You're not to do that. <gasps> oh, but, uh, that's right. It's, it's out of the way. Uh, not many people could gather around to watch it, a couple dozen probably could. But I think in the old days, whatever it was created, at least 500 years ago, maybe thousands. It's hard; nobody can tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was meant to be viewed. It was an instrument.
3: Right.
2: It's it's a, a small instrument now. In Cusco, before the Spaniards destroyed it all, they used to have huge pillars. That uh, the shadows would show you when the equinoxes were and the solstices and everything, and hundreds or thousands of people could gather and look at it.
3: Right. Well, that
2: that would be like Big Ben clock in London, whereas sure, Kiyurmiak right. is more like your grandfather clock in the hallway. You know, just one or two people are going to look at it. Right. But it was still it was still important. It was a I, right. in an agricultural, agricultural society. Uh, knowing when the seasons begin and end is a life or death matter
1: the fact that it still exists is what's phenomenal which i guess is going to roll us into um the the thought trilogy um sure. because we can expand on on that from a historical standpoint as well with you know recent discoveries and so on so what made you decide that this is this is what you wanted to do
2: well i'll tell you I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas. I lived across the street from the school. Our schoolyard was almost a forest. And all those kids used to dig in that, around the trees and mess with the trees, you know. We Mm -hmm. always found arrowheads in the schoolyard, you know. And I always wondered, you find little arrowheads. What kind of people lived here hundreds or thousands of years ago? Mm -hmm. Then downtown, in Little Rock, there's a birthplace of General Douglas MacArthur. Mm -hmm. They made it to Natural History Museum. And in there, they had uh, things from uh, Middle America, Central America. Mm. They had ancient Indian stuff, and they had some phony stuff. And it fascinated me, so I was always interested in it. Then when I became an engineer many years later, I always had in the back of my mind, you know, what, what did people like me do in the past? Well, you know, I wound up going to Stonehenge, and I went to the pyramids. Mm. I went to all kinds of Indian mounds around the U.S., and uh, a long story to get me to Peru, but I went to Peru twice. The first time looking at another thing and it came across Kiarumiok by almost by accident. Mm. The second time I went was in 2017 with my late brother. We spent five or eight days there and went out to Kiarumiok a couple of times and took all kinds of videos that proved the shadows that I was looking for. It proved they were there. And so mm-hmm. people might argue with what I've found and. In my book, I speculate on some things and I demonstrate other things as facts. And the videos, the pictures I took are facts. I can't argue with that. It does happen. Right. And anybody can go and see it anytime. Okay. Right. So one of the places we visited uh, both times was a place called Saxo Man, Sexy Woman, Saxo Woman. They call it Sexy Woman in there. <laughs> <laughs> a bunch of huge gargantuan stones megaliths, outside the city of Cusco. And you've seen pictures of that you're rocks that are 20 feet wide and 30 feet tall and 20 feet thick Hmm. Nobody knows how where they came from or how they got there but it was actually a fortress of some sort and the conquistadors and their infinite wisdom tore down as much as they could but the big rocks were just too big for them to to mess with So they left them there Uh, and some of the rocks nearby There was a place they called it the upside down staircase there's a huge rock laying there, and there's a staircase in it, but the rock is upside down. And they say, well, nobody knows why they made it. Well, right next to it was a great, another great big rock. And it looked to me like the huge rock had been caught, cut off, or not cut off, but had broken off. And if you put it back together, you would have a staircase going in a proper direction, which is up. Wow. And I got to thinking, you know, and reading, and I said, you know, these things might be, 15,000 years old. They're not Hmm. here. The Inca couldn't have done it because the Inca were only in power for a couple hundred years. right? And They couldn't have done all this stuff. And so I sat down on the way home. I sat down at the airport in Lima with my little laptop and I started to think, what is it going to be like 10, 20, 30, 50,000 years from now? Not much of our civilization will be left, but some things will be. And what will the people then think about it? And that's what started That Now, my whole life, or for many years, I've had a, almost a dream of a glacier retreating and of things coming out of the glacier and people finding it and wondering what it was. And when I sat down in Lima to start writing this thing, I immediately thought of a glacier. The glaciers can cause all this destruction, you know. Like it, a glacier that's a mile, two miles thick will destroy anything. Mm-hmm. And the next time it happens, you know, well, I got an a email from a lady today in Scotland. She says, you know, uh, talking about global warming. She says uh, where I am right now in, uh, in northern Scotland used to be under two kilometers of ice.
3: <laughs>
2: and so anything that was there was going to be crushed or scooped away. So I had this. I wanted to write a story about what would happen after the next ice age began to thaw. In mm-hmm. other words. What's going on during the ice age is probably not that interesting. People are just trying to survive. But after it's over, and there will be another ice age. I mean, it happens. Yes. It, yes. There's a thing called the Milankovitch cycles. Every 100,000 years, there's a tremendous drop in temperature. And uh, it precipitates an ice age. Now, sometimes there are little intermediate ice ages, smaller ice ages in between every ten or 20,000 years or something like that. But every 100,000 years now, going back for a million years, According to the data they've gathered in Greenland and Antarctica and the ice cores, there's a temperature drop. And actually now we're due for another one. Hmm. and I hope it doesn't happen. so I you know please burn your fossil fuels, and everything else let keep that sucker away because uh, coal kills and the right. warm period warm periods grow plants and crops and people and mm-hmm. the cold periods kill things. But anyhow, in my story, you don't learn this until later but basically i'll tell you right now and this the spoiler thing it takes place thirty thousand years from now when the glacier the glaciers in north america and the rest of the world are starting to recede have been receding for about 100 years and that's why i call it thaw the, the world is thawing out and the point of view characters in my story start out they are small people they're little the men there and boys are like two and a half feet tall. They're mm-hmm. tiny by our standards. The reason they are, now the editor asked me when they were looking at the story for Analog Magazine back in 2012, why, why are these people small? I said, well, they are in a place that was surrounded by glaciers, but their, their little area about hundred miles wide and 150 miles long was untouched by glaciers for some reason. So mm-hmm. for 30, for 30,000 years, they were isolated there. And resources uh, were scarce. And so they diminished in size as time went on. Now, that similar thing happened in Indonesia. You might have heard about the hobbits over there. They found yes. the hobbit skeletons. Well, this is the same thing that happened in uh, in my book. I call it the Tharn's Land. The Tharn is a is a, uh, a chief... And right. these people exist in a what we would call a Bronze Age, Iron Age society. Uh, they are totally male chauvinists. I mean, to them, in this society I'm talking about in the Tharnsland, uh, first off, all males are born twins. Females are only born singletons. You learn that, but and it's never explicitly stated, but that's just what happens in the story. Mm-hmm. And there are genetic reasons for that, but they uh, they're so small like that and some of the wild birds that survive in this one area are a larger version of what we call emus and so the upper classes in the Tharnsland land ride emus for transportation and for hunting hmm. they carry spears and they hunt and uh, they make the most of their environment uh since the glaciers are melting Occasionally ice breaks off. It flows down the river that comes by their town. And to us now, that was that would be the headwaters of the Mississippi River. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing takes place basically in the upper peninsula of uh, what we call Michigan. And that, that's I wrote, interesting. I wrote, I wrote that. And the funny thing was, I went up to a meeting up there. And, and the, uh, some people in upper Michigan said, well, that's true. I said, what do you mean? She's, they said, oh, yeah, the glaciers avoided this place. I said I had no idea. It's just part of the story. Right. So anyhow, these these two young guys and their father get into all kinds of adventures, and where they are, the women are. Uh, I mean, they love their mother. They call it their birther and their mother, and uh, they love them. But to them, women are just reproductive devices. They're right. They they love them, but they right. they don't have any rights or anything else. They're just there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this sets it up. So one of the brothers goes north with his father to find something in the ice. The other brother goes downstream because they sell icebergs to people who lived in the warmlands hundreds of miles south. Hmm. And so this guy rides an iceberg down to sell it to the people down in the warmlands. And he encounters a totally different civilization. The land people are about our size. They're natural, you know, they're not stunted. And uh, they come in all colors and all hair colors. They, these people up north are all dark-skinned, the color of mahogany, dark eyes, dark hair. Hmm. And uh, they get down to the place called the, place run by the uh, the Kingdom of the Solar Priest is what it amounts to, about where Memphis is today. And he sees these huge pyramids and huge temples and all these uh, tall people and the women are stunningly beautiful because they've never seen any they've never seen shapely women. The women of Tharn's Land are differently endowed and uh, these guys are just, it blows their mind.
1: Well, they're built for babies. <laughs> for and, baby uh, making.
2: <laughs> they, they, they make babies up there but anyhow and <laughs> There are there are physiological differences in males and females from Thornsland that I never describe, but only allude to. But what makes them very attractive to pe- normal sized people like us, right? I don't I don't get into that, but it's right implied and that's understood. I think.
3: Right.
2: So anyhow, they run into a society that builds huge temples, and they can't figure out how in the world they cut these stones, how they stack them like that, then. And uh, on and on, and then beyond that, the guy gets in all kind of trouble. One one guy is called his name is Wrist, Wrist, like your wrist. Right. And his brother, his twin brother, who stayed home is named Rusk. <clears throat> right. And Wrist goes on downstream. He has to run away because they're they're out. The solar priests are trying to kill him. He runs down to the end and he encounters like a two thousand foot waterfall. And that's what we would call the end of the Mississippi River. Emptying into what is an empty Gulf of Mexico. Right, right. At, at the bottom of which, when he finally gets to gets there, but he gets down into that area and finds a civilization that is totally matriarchal. I mean absolute. Hmm. The the queen or the the mother of mother, it's called Motherland. The mother of motherland absolutely owns like chattel. Every single person in that entire kingdom, millions of people, and her daughters, the princesses, are one step below them, and they own and they have absolute life and death over everybody and everything. Uh, Just like one princess describes later, it's like you know, you're like my fingernail, you know, I trim my fingernails, doesn't bother me, I could trim you, it doesn't bother me. And so, Mm -hmm. it's a real shock to him, but he learns and he grows. And he becomes, actually, because he can ride a bird, he becomes a specialized warrior. Right. And uh, the place that they came from never heard of warfare. I mean, they killed, they killed birds and they killed uh, wolves and things like that, but they never thought of killing each other. Hmm. It's, all these things that he runs into are just a total shock to him. They torture, they kill uh, the people in his country, don't know how to lie.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And he learns. He learns to lie. He learns to kill. Mm-hmm. And he hates what he becomes. Meanwhile, his brother, who stayed home, he and his father go up to the uh, glacier where some other creatures, young, some old, little silly little things, have found some things in the ice. And they found a uh, what amounts to a nanotech built flying device. Hmm. It looks like a, what we would call a propane tank or something like that, but it's about 10 feet wide, 30 feet long. And they they go through a bunch of problems to get it back down 100 miles back to their, their house where they can work on it. And they eventually find out it can suspend itself. It's got all kind of, no, nothing magic. It's all technology. They don't understand it. It looks like magic to them. And so the one kid goes off to search for your brother. And he gets involved in all those same adventures. Now, about one-third of what I told you was a story in Analog Magazine in 2012.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And the cover I sent you of Thaw there... Yeah, them I, them.
1: I just had it up. I'll get it back up here.
2: It shows it one of was- the guys writing an emu. And uh, it was yep. funny. The cover won the best cover of analog for that year for 2012. Wow. My story, my story, <laughs> my story didn't get anything. It wasn't even in the running, but, the, uh, right. it, but they that love the cover.
0: Sometimes. It is a beautiful
1: cover. It is. No, thank you. It is. There it is.
2: There he is on top of those are. And the people say, well, how come that bird is so big? I said, no, no, the guys are little.
1: Right. That's like an emu or an ostrich. And the guy's yeah, like the size a, of a yeah, hobbit. It's,
2: it's something like that. It's going to, you know, it's going to, The species is going to change over thousands of years. Okay. So that first part was an analog. It was called Thaw. And then I wrote the next part called Flow, which tells about him getting down to the Solar Priest. Then I wrote a third novella for analog called uh, Fall, Mm -hmm. F-A-L-L, which he winds up going down where the women run everything. And he's nothing. Uh, The editor didn't buy the rest of them, so I went ahead and put it put it into a book but then the little critters kept coming to my mind like hey we got more to tell we did more things than that so i wound up doing two more books and uh if you put them all together it's probably four hundred thousand words all three books wow now wow. the reason the ice age starts i needed a way for it to start right away i mean first i wrote the story and I filled it in later because I didn't know what I was writing. I to me it was like automatic writing. Um, I wrote this. I saw these. Little, I sat there in Lima. And I saw these little guys on birds. And I was, what the heck is this? And I started writing the story. And I have no idea where the stories come from. But it's almost like automatic writing. Mm-hmm. It just it developed all by itself. <laughs> and then, so I wrote the other books really to find out what was going on. I wanted to know what was going on. That's why I wrote the other books. Now, un- unfortunately for me, uh, the little guys are still yelling out for more things and prequels and sequels. And I don't know. I'll mm-hmm. see about that if I live long enough. But the uh, the point was, I, to, it, I realized it was, it was taking place after an ice age. Now, how did the ice age start? Well, the second book of the trilogy here is called Melt. Oh, then Melt. Melt has at the end of it, it tells uh, about 100 pages there, it tells what what happened. But basically, mm-hmm. there's a solar eruption that wipes out all our space stuff out over in Venus, Mercury and Venus, it wipes them out, and then it hits the back of the moon and wipes out all the colonies we have on the back of the moon. The ones in the front of the moon, the ones that live underground, uh, this is 200 years from now when the solar eruption occurs. Twenty, twenty-two, thirty-five, or something like that, wow. and uh, or twenty-three, whatever, whatever, it is, a couple hundred years from right. now. Right. There are people living on the moon. There are colonies on the moon, and it wipes out about half the Earth, and precipitates an ice age that starts like right away. I mean, like within <laughs> within months, screws up right. the world's whole the whole world's weather, and uh, you see then my idea of what society might look like on Earth. 200 years from now when, when all this is occurring and how some of the artifacts that they produced during that time wind up being very important to the story 30,000 years later. Mm. And when you build things on a nanotech, you build things at the quantum and molecular level with no moving parts, they're not going to wear out. Mm. So they'll be just as functional in 30,000 years as they are now. Right. And one of the things that happened to me, I I can't get into the details because I don't wanna mess up somebody else's stuff. (laughs) But when thinking about this, I was talking to a friend who's writing books about real stuff. I was saying, what if in some of the things around the world, we're looking for ancient artifacts, we're looking at the wrong thing. What if technology 20,000 years ago was so advanced that they built things like what I call God spheres Things about the size of a bowling ball that you certain people touch them and knowledge comes out, and you can interrogate them. It'd be like a a quantum computer that you carry around, right? That has has everything in it. I mean, virtual reality and 3D, Mm. everything, right? So, it's funny when you think about writing about the future, archaeologists finding things in the future, maybe we're looking at things right now. That incorporate that technology we, we don't realize it because we can't think that the ancients were smart enough to do that right so anyhow part of this the second book takes place on the moon in the uh, underground uh, colonies or underground cities that survived in 30,000 years of living underground affects things too Right. Now, one of the things I didn't mention about Tharnsland being that close to the glacier they live under what they call the misty sky. They've never seen a clear sky. It's always misty or cloudy, always, because right. the way the prevalent winds are. And so the people there, their eyesight developed. They all all the people in Tharn's Land, including the little guys, Risk and Rusk, are uh, farsighted, extremely farsighted. They can't, anything within arm's reach is totally out of focus. Anything beyond that, they can see. So they have no way of writing And understanding, so they carve. They they record things by wood, ivory, or any kind of uh, solid material. They carve in. They have a knife, and they carve their uh, what we call writing into that. So they call them a spindle. So you can pick up a spindle, and if you're trained in it, you can read the curves and depth and everything else. And Mm. it's almost like reading is to us. So when they get down to on the moon now, those people's living in tunnels, their eyesight is totally changed after all these years. And most of them are very small too for the same reasons. Uh, limited resources, and limited food, and uh, environmental pressures. And so, and there there is a link. I won't go into it because it's too much to talk about. There is a, a technology that was left on Earth then our time or the time a couple of years now was used to communicate with people on the moon and they still have it in motherland that they think it's a magic throne that the mother sits on and uh, there are some on the moon and they haven't been used in thousands of years and every time she, uh, the mother tries to sit on it and get the messages from the goddess who runs everything all she receives is garbage messages. Now, reading a book, you can understand what the message is, but she doesn't. It's a totally foreign language. She thinks a goddess is speaking to her, but the uh, what they don't realize, and they haven't realized for thousands of years, is a continued use of this communication device, this throne, the crystal throne they call it,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, starts to degenerate the brain. So every mother that has ever been has become psychotic, raving, psychotic. And they're usually killed by their own daughters. So mm. there's there's a lot of world building in there. It gets nasty. Right. And uh, right. so then there's societies on the moon, societies on the earth. And then one of our little heroes, one of the guys, actually has occasion to get on that throne. And he makes contact with a young woman on the moon. And they're able to exchange information and the and they both learn through the computers on the moon what ha- actually happened to mess up the world and so a- around the world now that that's that's the second book and there's all kind of fighting and wars going on unfortunately that this happens it's not the primary part of the book but it does happen that there's warfare involved brutality and meanness and all that stuff like humans always do and then they in the third one it goes into what other societies around the world have been doing during this ice age and it's called flow F L O E, and it begins on an ice flow around uh, around what we would call Scandinavia there are ice pirates who have big boats that are ice boats skid on the ice and they raid other places and uh, they wind up encountering the people from the motherland and all kind of hilarity ensues after that uh, there's there's killings and there's education and uh, the main thing is the people change the young guys from this semi-barbaric society become sophisticated and they learn uh about the broader world. They burnt, they learn about absolute history. This flying craft carries with it quantum computers and it, it has all of human history on there. Mm. These guys look at it and they think, Well, that's pretty cool, but that those people are mean. We don't want we don't want devices that can wipe out cities. We don't want to hurt other people. And so we mm. don't like that old world. We don't want to bring the old world back. Mm. So they look back on our world as uh-uh. Like we would look back on on the Romans or somebody, we don't want to do that. Right. So, and there's there's 400,000 words of this kind of stuff. It sounds a lot like
1: the planet of the apes, you know, it takes you back to being advanced in their own right for a primitive time. But when they come across all the futuristic stuff and they see Hmm. how they came to be where they are, it's like, it's pretty shocking.
2: Yeah. Well, all, all these things play. I mean, that's my idea was that in science fiction, not all science fiction, the future doesn't always mean spaceships and the robots, right. you know, right. It, it uh, the world will undergo another ice age sometime. I don't know. A hundred right. years from now or a thousand or 10,000, but it will do it. And when it does, it's going to destroy the physical infrastructure of half of the world, at least. Right. The, I'm hoping that Elon can get his rockets going to Mars and other places so that some people will be away from here when that happens. We I will think, be a model. Multi-
0: yeah, a multi- I think, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, you're a guest, please.
2: Uh, I want us to be a multi-planetary society. Back, back in 1992, I went to work at the White House Science Office as a fellow. And uh, one of the men there, uh, Dr. Bill Phillips, very good guy, says, I understand you're interested in space. How can we want to go to the moon to Mars? Who cares? we got problems on Earth. I said, well, Dr. Phillips, this way. All the human race is on one little mud ball. Mm. One place. If there's a plague, a comet, a nuclear war, something goes astray, we could lose everybody and everything, and that's it. But if we have some people on the moon or Mars... Uh, scattered around through space, other planets. Uh, it's going to take a lot to wipe out, out everybody. And I'd like to think that uh, some people will survive, all, get all of our eggs out of the same basket. Right. And Dr. Phillips said, you know, nobody has ever explained it to me that way. So I totally agree with you. I'll support that. And that's okay. one of the reasons I got into the White House Science Office for a year.
1: Right, right. Years I mean, ago. you think about it, it does. It makes a lot of sense. You know, but I mean, what if, I mean, I guess an ice age, an ice age typically would happen towards the northern part of the globe.
2: It happened up, well, it comes up from Antarctica too, that way also. Right, right. It hits South South America. And Mm -hmm. if you had a solar catastrophe, like I talked about in the book, then uh, no telling what it could be. Mm Mm-hmm. But like I say, you put suddenly put two miles of ice over where Indianapolis and New York mm-hmm. and Philadelphia are, uh, the yeah. world's going to change a lot. And then, of course, Moscow and the Scandinavian countries would totally be gone.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, the oceans would flow differently. There wouldn't be a Gulf Stream anymore. Mm-hmm. So Europe wouldn't freeze. Uh, who knows? Right. Who knows what? It, it, it would be a mess. Right. Well, in, in my scenario, when the sun erupted like that, it caused more than just the ice age. I mean, the solar radiation and heat killed a lot of people. And only only a few thousand who were underground survived, basically. Mm-hmm. I tell how that occurred when the people went underground. Right. and uh, right. you know, it's, it's fiction, but it's, it's food for thought. And like I said, when I was writing it, it was more like automatic writing. I my wife said, "How you come here spending so much time on that?" I said, "Well, I want to know what these guys are doing. <laughs> I want right. to see it. I, I watch. It. I would love to be able to go straight from my mind to video, and not have to worry about the fingers and the keyboard and all that <laughs> stuff."
1: Well, because that interferes with the thought process, you can't get it, it out does. exactly the way you see it.
0: Can you just yes. speak into a recorder? I'm sorry. Can you speak hmm? into a recorder? I've done that with automatic writing instead of writing. I've had. Well, where I was just recording everything that was coming to me.
2: My friends have recommended I do that, and I yeah, I don't know. I've been writing with my finger fingers on the keyboard since I was fourteen years old. Yeah, That's well, eventually
1: you got to get to that process, <laughs> right? Eventually, you have to get it down from on the keyboard.
0: Yeah, so well I, you can do voice to text, right? There's I know it's scary to try something new because you think am I gonna miss something?
2: Well, so I've I've been tempted to do it. I just haven't yet. If, if my arthritis yeah. keeps up with my fingers and my shoulders, they are places, I might have to do it. <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: I know how stuff. that feels. My hands but you know, yeah. When I,
1: when I think of the last ice age, for example, like what you know, you were talking about how people react when they find you know, traces of, of the last civilization. I mean, and it was interesting when your story, you said your story took place up near Michigan because there is a Stonehenge in Lake Michigan and near the Stonehenge that they found, this ancient monument, now that was completely underwater. At one time, pre-Ice Age, it was above water, but there's also a stone that they found with a mastodon carved and painted on it. And it's all underwater.
2: Yeah, things change. You know, it, it's the world cr- to-
1: crazy though, isn't it? Like, to me, well, I would find that fascinating. But
2: yeah, I, yeah. I, I really wish they would spend more time and money to go down and retrieve those things, record them, or do something. So yes. they never- a, a similar thing happened. I heard about it many years ago. I was always interested in Loch Ness. I, I went. I went a couple times. Right. Scotland, and it turns out one time when they were doing radar sonar underground and underwater in Loch Ness, they found a stone circle at the bottom of Loch Ness, too. See? Now, that mm. that cracked. It might... Scotland cracked like that like millions of years ago, but the locks might not have filled until uh, after the last ice age, ice age melted and raised the water levels. But I've, right. I, I read that one time and I've never seen anything about it since then. Even when I went there, I asked the people at the museum, have you t- ever heard about that? Oh, no. no, Nothing.
3: Right. Right.
2: But, um, but the, world, the world has changed a lot. And uh, we ignore most of it, it seems like.
1: I'm just actually pulling something up that I'm going to share with you. I'm hoping that you can, you'll be able to see it from your phone. Because if you've not seen these, then I definitely want to show them. So... Just because there, there are people who are watching, so if you can bear with me. Oh, you're kind of crooked there. So I had to perfect. perfect. Okay. okay. One second. Okay. I'm to, so I'm going, I'm, I'm going to, to have... sh- share this. So these are just the different um, photographs. Um, here's the, the stone structure found in Lake Michigan. Oh wow. There's a the stone with the mastodon.
2: I have seen some of these before, yeah.
1: Aren't they fantastic? I mean, there's this is the stone with the mastodon um with yeah. a diver over it, just to, to give you an idea. And here's the overhead. So right there is the overhead. Um, let's see if I can come up a little bit so they give you more. So I mean this is and this is where it is in Lake Michigan like right up in, hold on, right up in here. So there's all kinds of rock formations. There's all kinds of, you know, stone structures that are all just standing.
2: Yeah. I have read too, that there are a, a line of structures between two of the lakes that are, they've been underwater for at least 10,000 years too. And in addition to this, there was another thing I saw in a television program about, a series right. of, uh, I don't know, a road or uh, something. I had to, pardon me, I had to put in my readers here. I had since we talked last, I had cataract surgery, and it's messed up my close vision.
1: Oh no! Okay, I'm I, sorry I to hear that.
2: Yeah, I wouldn't have, had, wouldn't have had it done if I had known it was going to do that. Now I can't see close up. I'm about like my guys on my story. I can't see things right. <laughs> within my arm's reach. <laughs> uh-huh. Not good. You try
0: <laughs> getting the lenses, Arlen.
2: I, well they told me it would be good.
0: Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. I can't so I, I can't done. do it yet. So I've got readers. I did the LASIK thing and lost my my uh my ability to see up close. But I have 20/20 yeah. vision at a distance and it's been like that for over 15 years. <laughs> but I can't see my food in front of me.
2: Yeah. Well, i I have good vision beyond my arm's length. Far away. I can yeah. read the books, I shelves, but I can't read <laughs> I'm Can't exactly
0: re- like you. I know your pain.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny. I, I talk about those guys having that problem, and now I have it myself. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I'm i a member of the Ancient Kentucky Historical Association down here in Louisville. And uh, we always have speakers coming in talking about ancient stuff. Uh, sometimes I would like to recommend you uh, talk to my friend who is the president of that group, Lee Pennington. Mm-hmm. And he can tell you the story of the true story of King Arthur.
1: Right. Really? Oh, we're, we're, we always love to have interesting people. I in love mind, King so, Arthur. Yeah.
2: Okay. King Arthur. There were two King Arthurs that are conflated in history. But the most famous one was killed here in Kentucky by American Indians. And then his body transported back to Wales where it was buried later. And you have to take that uh, and and run with that. Oh, I, I
1: like it. Yes, we would be interested. Absolutely. Uh,
2: yeah, years ago when I lived in Indianapolis, I had read that somebody had found a, a lot of uh, ancient armor on a on an island in the Ohio River here, not far from where I live. And uh, I always thought that was fascinating, and said, "Yeah, that would happen." But nobody knows what happened to all the armor and stuff. And the uh, there was a big fort built fortress built up that uh, Lewis and Clark saw when they came through and right. President, Jefferson, President Jefferson wanted to look at it. Right. But over the years, over the years, it was quarried away and destroyed. Mm. But it was a mess. They call it the uh, the Gibraltar of the Ohio River is what it's called. I think at one time it was a huge fortress and nobody knows who built it or when.
1: But- you guys have some very fascinating sites and I mean, you just look at all the mounds throughout the United States. I mean, they're finding traces that the Incas and the Mayans may have made it all the way into the northern United States as well. What are your thoughts yeah. on that?
2: Yeah, they're Lee can give you lectures on each one of these things. <laughs> right. Lee, Lee used to be the port laureate of uh, Kentucky, and uh, I'll I'll tell him about you guys and let you get in touch with him. He's yeah, he's got, he's got a thousand stories about a million things, and
1: uh, well, we'd love it if, if he's interested in you know, like you know, two, three million people listening. It's the latest, <laughs> absolutely.
2: The latest thing he did last weekend uh, was a he and his fiance had gone to Bosnia to look at the pyramids mm. there, and he gave a he's he's made movies about these places.
3: Yes,
1: I'm
2: I'm not a fan of the Bosnian pyramids myself. I don't think they're real.
0: Oh,
1: that's fascinating because it's How quite a large one that they've discovered.
0: That must make for a great conversation between the two of you.
2: Well, he, we don't argue; we're friends.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> it, it would be an interesting conversation. It doesn't but, have to be uh, an argument.
2: The famous, uh, the famous writer and explorer and professor Robert Schock, you know, who talked about the Sphinx, he thinks that they the Bosnian pyramids are not real. Mm. And my friend Chris Dunn, who's been over there, thinks they're not real. Hmm. And uh, but that's there's so many interesting things in the world that we agree on. It's not worth it's that more, kind of. It's stuff. a
1: curiosity. I'd be really curious to hear why
2: he I, thinks uh,
1: that they're not, you know, or why people well, think that they are.
2: I met back in 2010. I was at a conference in Houston with my friend Chris Dunn and uh, Samas Majanich. Dr. Sam the guy who discovered them the pyramids and we had good good conversations about that there's there's just so many things in the world that i think are concrete i hate to use that word but are real and solid <laughs> we can agree on like these things in the bottom of Lake michigan how come that's not the, how come there's not a museum up there that demonstrates and shows all this stuff people studying, getting a master's or doctor's degree, studying. Um, at the I don't break, you know? think
1: that they've known. about. I think it's fairly recent discovery, maybe in the last handful of years. Um, well, but, but, I mean, look at Midwest,
2: uh, 10 years at least.
1: Yeah. But I mean, if you look at even off the coast of, of Cuba down there, there is another. There's a city there like cities, even in the Azores, you know, like they're discovering pyramids and cities underwater. I mean, we know we 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 know where there's two continents that are underwater that no, you know, we we don't really acknowledge. You don't see it on the maps, you don't see it on the globes, but we know that they're there where they used to be. And that's what I'm saying. When you know, history has a way or the the planet, whatever the case may be, it levels things out with ice ages and so on, meteor strikes wiped out the dinosaurs, you know. Uh it has a way of purging itself but it also has a way over time um of making things come to the surface and i think maybe they find in like michigan i think that you know there's probably more all over the place but technology now is allowing us to find some of these places like lidar being able to let us look down okay. over the canopies okay. of south america for example And find civilizations that have been hidden under the canopy there for you know hundreds, if not thousands, well, hundreds of years for sure, not even maybe thousand years. But I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, we—I would be nice to excavate it all, but I just don't think it's possible.
2: Well, can excavate it, but uh, well, I'm I'm thinking right now. It's too bad that some countries in the world want to be like Russia is. I mean the cost of that war in ukraine besides yeah. the human life the human lives that are being wasted by the damn russians the cost of that war in one day would probably finance a hundred archaeological expeditions right and like president president eisenhower said every missile built every tank every warplanes built could build a school or a hospital yes. I mean, I could, i'd like to see <laughs> go out and use lidar over the whole world and yeah. uh, send a hundred expeditions underwater and scour everything and do that stuff but Unfortunately, when there's bad people in the world doing bad things, we, we have to defend ourselves. But well, a There shame. is an
1: archaeologist that uses satellite technology to find pyramids and has found ancient cities and pyramids throughout Egypt by using I, satellites. I
2: thought, I thought she had done that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it, the technology, I think, allows for it. Um, but I guess it's just a matter of which countries will allow it. Egypt is so into they're finding new stuff every day.
2: Yeah, my my friend Chris Dunn uh, is wrote books about Egypt, the you know, Giza power plant, lost technologies of ancient Egypt, and uh, and he's he's got actually uh, now there Arabic translations of his books And oh. Arabic. Uh, Egyptian engineers, young Egyptian engineers and scientists are getting interested in what he's written, so they can reclaim their own heritage. So that's a wonderful thing that they're they're. they're, they're that's what I, in Peru. That's the reason, the reasons I wrote the book. About Kearumuk. I wanted local Peruvians to go out there and study the thing. I mean, yes. I can't do it thousands of miles away and uh, let them study it. Let them talk to the local people, see what legends and stories there are around other artifacts and uh, dig it up and appreciate the culture.
1: Right. I, mean, I can appreciate they, well, that.
2: And spe- speaking of technology, it's, as far as I know, I might have been the very first and only person so far to take a sculpture like that, model it in 3D to figure out what its functions were, not just as a as something ornamental or ritual, but actually mm-hmm. a working instrument. And I don't know that anybody else has ever done that. I just used a readily available three uh, D CAD software, right, and uh, and proved it, right. And so I th- there's no telling how much other ancient stuff we could look at, like you say, with modern technology, and analyze it, and one of the things I reg- originally went to Peru for was the this, this Sowete Stone. The Sowete Stone, I saw it on television many years ago. And I looked at it and said, that's a hydraulic model. So I was at a world science fiction convention in 1986 in Atlanta. And I'd just seen this thing on television. And I was at a party, a drunken party. And uh, there's one lady there. We talking she was an archaeologist from south america just moved back to the states and i said do you uh and i talked to her, to her about this model stone and she said oh yeah we've got a lot of those down in central south america i said have you ever found mercury in any of those she said yeah there are traces of mercury in a lot of them we have no idea why i said i know why but i said stay stay here i'll be right back i've got to refill some drinks. So I got back and she was gone.
3: <laughs>
1: no, of oh, course. No. And what it was, I <laughs> right. had, when I was right.
2: studying that stone, I said, how would you model? Well, I first did it with the pyramids. I was concerned about water flow in pyramids. I wanted to make a model of the Great Pyramid and fill it with something that would act like water would. But you can't scale down water. You have to, uh, if I was going to make a pyramid the size of two by feet, two feet square, you can't use water. It wouldn't work the same way. It, there's a thing called dimensional analysis. And water has got a, mm. a density and a surface tension and stuff. You know, the f- closest thing I could find was liquid mercury that would work. So I figured they'd probably use liquid mercury. So when I saw that model of the Suede stone in Peru, I said they would probably use liquid mercury. So in 2012, when I went there with my son, I I, I bought a uh, mercury detection kit from Israel, I think it was. Mm. And I went there to see the Suede stone. And uh, I didn't find any traces of mercury, unfortunately. But it was on the way, way to the Stone, and we saw the sign about the Key I said, "Well, let's come back tomorrow and go look at that other, that place." Well, that Key became almost an obsession with me after that, and I spent a lot of time on it. Right. So but i have able to prove it. So it made me feel good.
1: Well, what do you think about? Would you look at discoveries like that? Do you think it's something that primitive people of the time could have done, or? Do you think maybe that, you know, because let's face it, when you look at ancient monuments and you look at, you know, hieroglyphs, petroglyphs, that sort of thing, they emulated what they saw. Do you think it's possible that a more advanced culture could have come down and assisted them in creating some of the things that you saw or that that exists down in Peru and other countries?
2: That's funny. I'm I'm writing a novel about that very thing right now. (laughs) No, I'll try (laughs) to get
1: out of your head.
2: (laughs) <laughs> but it uh, well, that's been bouncing around a long time. There's not a lot of archeological proof, but I have a gut feeling that before that younger Dryas cataclysm and whatever it was, that hit the earth. There were other civilizations on earth that were advanced. Right. And, uh, they probably went around and taught people things. The, uh, now there are there are only so many ways of make, cutting stone and building stuff like that, so a lot of that just it's going to be a natural result. It's not being taught. but but I don't think there's any reason that the the brains of people living in Peru, Ecuador, Bolivia would be any different than the brains of people living in Italy or Greece or Egypt. You know, I mean, mm. uh, the I was going to say about that Suede stone. There's a lost technology built into it. It's been there for hundreds or thousands of years, and nobody ever knew it. In the eastern part of Peru, on the Pacific Coast side, there's not much rain. There's a desert over there. But yet, tens of thousands of people used to live there, and they could never understand how could they irrigate properly and raise enough crops to have a population like that. Well, they found it. Archaeologists finally found it, what it was, I think, in the 80s they use a system called waru waru if you look at it from the top it's like your fingers your fingers are raised areas of earth and the in between the fingers is water they had these little mounds of dirt about maybe a foot high and they did them in a finger like thing like that Mm with water in and out and the water wasn't very deep it's only about a foot deep and uh, it turns out in those dark skies at night, the the temperature of the earth rises toward the uh, black sky and it creates a, a fog of water above these little uh, mounds of dirt where you've got your plants planted mm-hmm. as a microclimate. And that is very conducive to raising crops. And they were able to make all kinds of crops. Well, in the 80s, they discovered that that technology again, and it's mm-hmm. now used in China and all over South America. But right. when you look at, and this is what clued me on when I first looked at TV at the Saweetie Stone, being a model, and the Saweetie Stone, there are examples of that. You pour water on top of it, it comes down and runs into these little areas. So that Saweetie Stone, which was there for hundreds or thousands of years, had that technology, irrigation technology built into it demonstrated for anybody to go see but yet it the technology itself was not rediscovered until the last century. Mm-hmm. yet the people in the Corral on the west side of the Indies had been using that that technology and the people on the east side of the Indies where we saw it cop, uh, put it in stone and documented it. So I was wondering what else in that that model that stone model so weighty stone is about 13 feet long eight feet wide and uh, eight feet high and it's got 200 uh, figures and carvings and special day items carved into it and uh at the bottom of it are the waru waru irrigation fingers and like i said that that was a lost technology but it actually existed on that stone for everybody to see for hundreds of years right what else is out there that we, we're looking at and we don't understand that we can learn from right now,
3: right? And, right.
2: and that, those are macro things. That if there was an ancient technology of nanotech, quantum technology in the ancient times, I mean, okay, put it this way science has only existed for what 500 years. I ah, mean, uh,
3: well, that's for,
1: <laughs> for our current civilization. Yeah. Let's face it, we're not the first kick at the can at this planet.
2: <laughs> yeah, no. But I'm saying the science that we know about. Yes, and we we can trace back every invention except for fire and a wheel, just about and the stirrup. We can trace it back to where it started, and apparently either the person who did it or the culture that did it. But uh, what? And that's only in like 500 years. What if there was another island somewhere in the on the world that had existed for? instead of 500 years, for 5,000 years without wars and earthquakes and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And they'd had science for 5,000 years instead of 500 years.
3: Right.
2: So this could have been your ancient civilization. Uh, To me, the most logical place would be Indonesia. Somewhere in Indonesia. Uh, There might have been an island before the younger Trias cataclysm came and flooded everything. Uh, maybe there was a society there that had science for five thousand years, and they developed everything we have and more. But they were not interested in taking over the world. They were interested in staying home and doing whatever they wanted. Mm. If they came up with micro machines and nanotechnology, even if we saw it today, we wouldn't recognize it. Maybe we couldn't even see it. You might think it was dust. Mm. The reason I say Indonesia, you know, you've heard of Gunung Penang. The mm-hmm. pyramid in Indonesia, this right. carbon dated mm-hmm. for twenty four thousand years old. Right, and it's real. This it's not a controversial like bazia is. This is real.
1: Well, there's one in Russia that's huge. They believe that was a cradle of civilization. Like there's a lot of research being done for some of well, these locations. I'm, I'm sorry.
2: In, until Russia becomes civilized country, I don't, I don't, <laughs> well, I don't, I don't believe anything that comes out of them. Right. <laughs> to me, they are worse. They are worse than the Nazis. Right. They killed more people than the Nazis did. Right. And so I, I I took Russian 60 years ago during the Cuban Missile Crisis. I was taking Russian from a Russian. And the, I wanted to learn what I needed just in case. But uh, mm. I have nothing but utter disgust for the whole society. And I'm, I make a prediction that within five years, Russia won't exist like it does now. It'll be 20 different little... Countries all squabbling with each other. We're gonna get rid yeah,
1: We YouTube. that's best suited for a political show that we're not yeah. <laughs> you're gonna have YouTube's gonna boot us off. <laughs> oh,
2: okay.
3: They'll boot so, us okay. live.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you
1: can
2: you can censor me because Yeah. Hey, maybe we yeah. can do it on Twitter. Elon will won't, won't censor us.
0: I was just going that's what I was trying to say earlier when you were saying I hope Elon's getting us out there I think there's a lot of things I believe that Elon's doing a lot without saying too much he's smarter than that
2: yeah he's smarter than a lot of things a couple of he's he's another one that shouldn't make political statements
0: (laughs) oh I I don't know I don't mean political statements I'm saying with the Mars thing I really believe that there's a lot more he's doing that we don't know about yet.
2: Uh, on the Mars thing, I wrote a story that was published a few years ago in an anthology called Earth. <laughs> the story is about Mars, but the anthology is called Earth. A story called I Hate Mars. And it turns out the basis of the story is that we land on Mars. We finally find microbial life, bacterial life, viral life. And it's deadly to mankind. It's deadly to all earthly things. Which is one of the reasons, by the way, I'm I, with all those people who don't want to bring any Mars samples back to Earth. Uh-uh. Bring them to the moon, maybe, but don't bring them to Earth. So it turns out in the story that people can't want to bring any Mars samples. It turns out that people can't live on Mars. And so they send robots down and they're mm-hmm. able to transfer parts of human consciousness into robots for uh, people who are under death sentences or life print. Pres- Prison sentence, life sentences in prison and so the story takes place there's a guy who was high and drunk and killed a bunch of kids by his car wreck and then they sentenced him either to death or go to Mars and so he said well how bad can it be so he's his consciousness is put in a little robot and he wanders around Mars and that's how the story starts but hmm. the premise my, my fear is that there might be micros on Mars that Interact with us in a bad way, and uh, as silly as NASA has been with all this stuff, you know they've only sent they've only sent two probes to Mars that to detect life, and they both did. 1976, both Mars landers, the Viking landers, both detected life, mm. and uh, they shut them down. And the only reason they had life detection on them at that time is Carl Sagan demanded that there be. Uh, I had a. I worked for a guy who was there when Carl Sagan came in when they were working on the Mars landers and demanded that uh, they put life detection on it, and nobody believed that. They think well, it should be geology. We're not interested in life. But since then, they've had no no life detection machines. All they've got right now is uh, all kind of geological stuff, but they don't have anything. Mm -hmm. I keep hoping that they will find a fossil. One of these probes will find a fossil there that you can't deny or an artifact like a, a spear.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: In fact, I, I guess I could talk about it now. I had talked to somebody who knew somebody who was working on one of those probes. I said, why don't you put an arrowhead spring loaded, airhead, on one of the landers. So after it lands, it springs a little arrowhead out where uh where the cameras can pick it up and I said if you did that we would have a manned Mars program the next week right and the guy said I don't think we'd want to do that I, said, I really wish I had apparently right. they didn't they didn't want to do it but
1: right do you, you think be... that a lot of people speculate that Mars is actually a dead planet It was dead mm-hmm no uh, core
2: just I I don't know I I have this basic feeling just because I'm human I guess that the universe with all the rules and laws and phenomena that it has has a driving mission to create life intelligent life
3: mm-hmm.
2: and probably life even beyond what we are maybe of course spiritual nice. life or some of other life and that that I I believe that someday they'll find some kind of plant life on the moon for God's sakes right I, I think on Mars they're going to find they're going to find living things on Mars mm-hmm. and uh, I hope we recognize them and I just don't want to bring them back here and let them loose on earth right because you think smallpox amongst the the Incas and Aztecs was bad can we, we stand for the, for the whole yeah don't,
1: don't we stand that risk even in in the ice here on the planet as things thaw out scientists have found um you know diseases and and viruses and uh microbes that have just been frozen in the permafrost and this is starting to thaw out and there's a concern with that as mm-hmm. well it could
2: be i mean uh I saw that. Yeah, we've defrosted a forty thousand year old virus. I know what what could possibly go wrong? I think we've all seen that movie, you know.
3: Yes. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, Sadly, you
2: know, we talk about we talk about the global warming and the ice and the glaciers and everything. And I saw a headline last week. I think it was last year was the warmest year in eight hundred or one hundred and twenty five thousand years on Earth. And and as an engineer. I just wanted to moon. Okay, first off, we don't know what the temperature of the world was mm-hmm. in 1823. Fair enough, yes. And uh, the ice cores we have, like I said, from the last million years show that uh, there was a medieval warm period, a lot warmer than this right now. We are actually in a, in between an ice age right now. And they were actually... Colder right now than we have been in a long time, and uh, we're gradually inching back up to normal. Now, what is normal? I mean,
3: mm-hmm. I,
2: it it's not true. It is not true that this the world is hotter than it's ever been. Right. Because, uh, yeah. This the glaciers can prove it. I I keep reading about uh, people in Norway, archaeologists in Norway and Sweden and Finland. Uh, as the glaciers removed, they're finding artifacts and habitations. As the glaciers melt, they said, "How terrible this is!" And, wait a minute, that means that when the, before the glaciers came, there were people living there. Mm.
3: When mm-hmm. a glacier
2: moves back and you find things from people living there, that meant it must have been warmer in the old days than it is now. Right. They never make that correlation and I always thought this is ridiculous I am an, I'm not a scientist I'm an engineer I'm an engineer who deals in practical things
3: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, if you find something where the ice was they showed people were living there that meant people were living there before the ice came so what does that mean it was warmer <laughs>
3: so right right
2: the whole thing right. It I guess it's a political thing I don't want to get into. But, the planet uh,
3: has
1: changed many times. Um, you know, there's locations and out-of-place artifacts that have been found that go back, you know, hundreds of millions of years, billions of years. You know, we look at it with amazement and trying to figure out, well, how long has you know, how long ago was that? You know, ancient civilizations, maybe more advanced civilizations. Yet some of these locations are pretty primitive, but it just goes to show that we're not the first civilization here that it's happened a few times before us and, and very possibly just like as per your book that there'll be more civilizations that will be here long after we have departed you know if there's anything left of the planet and judging that we don't get hit by a supernova or an asteroid you know yeah. life has a way of fixing itself and replenishing itself over thousands of years or hundreds of years, whatever the case may be.
2: Yeah, that's that's why I want to get people off and get people in other worlds. So no matter what happens to this one, Right. You go on. I mean, uh, I right. I'm not supposed to announce it, but I have a new great grandson that was just born yesterday, and uh, oh, congratulations! Congratulations! congratulations. We, have, we have to wait. We have to wait until everybody is okay about what his name is and where he was born but it, it wasn't in the United States yeah
1: right of course very nice yeah <laughs>
2: congratulations
1: but I, I, like to think,
2: I like to think these guys these little guys he's got a sister and I have a lot of I have 11 grandkids and now two great grandkids wow and I'm hoping, I'm hoping that somewhere in those genes some piece of me will be out there standing on Mars someday and right maybe who knows maybe on Star's and right. if we ever, if we ever finally make friendly and beneficial contact with whatever these things are flying around our own Earth, mm-hmm. uh, maybe actually some of us will actually get to see th- other stars, other star systems.
3: Right.
2: Oh. So to me, it's it's obvious that somebody, somewhere, something has got a means of, I wouldn't say traveling, I would just say being from other places, mm-hmm. other stars, Right. And, I, I just like to think there's a future out there. I hope that what we have right now is not the best that, that mankind has ever done. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: Yeah, we don't play well in the sandbox, do we? <laughs> like I no, said, I think we all agree
0: on that. If,
2: if I ever, if if I ever get to, me, to meet the Creator, and he he or she pays any attention to me, I got a few suggestions. Right. As, design, as a design engineer, I have a few questions. I have a few suggestions for improvement. <laughs> right. Right.
1: Well, I, I mean, you know, I think that we all have to learn how to coexist with one another better. I think we, we have a lot of ego out there. We have a lot of power struggles. We have, you know, there, there's a lot of things that make people tick. And I just think that, you know, it's all within us. We don't have a whole lot of control of what goes on in the world, but we, how we handle it and how we handle one another we do have control over it's the only thing we have control over is ourselves our own thoughts our own actions um you know i think that that there's a lot of potential for people
2: yeah i have
1: i have hope in that
2: yeah other people recognize this too i probably about 30 years ago maybe longer i was having i don't remember why now but i was at a low point, I was very depressed for some reason. I don't remember what, now. And I was just looking for something. So I started reading my great books that I had. And Marcus Aurelius, the emperor. Mm-hmm. I was reading him. And I thought, well, here's a guy 2,000 years ago writing stuff that appeals to me now. This is amazing. It's like he's a modern guy. Right. And he had a he had a statement there that stunned me and lifted me up and still does. Is basically what he was saying in modern terms. is this, "We can't control what the gods throw at us. All we can control is our response to it." Right. In other words, that's right. You can't control what life gives you, but you can control how you react to it. Correct. And uh, I said that that's something everybody needs to learn at an early age. Uh, mm-hmm. I love the words that he spoke back then. That was. Mm-hmm. That was but astounding. we have to
3: teach
1: it to the next generation as well.
2: Yeah. So bad things happen. I mean, catastrophic things happen and uh, you can either totally fall apart and go berserk and die, or you can, Mm. you know, live with it and uh, accommodate it and uh, and go forward. I agree. I agree.
1: And, And you pay it forward and you have, we have to teach the next generation and the generation after that, because, if you don't, what kind of a legacy do we leave?
2: Oh, I could give you, I could give you an example, but I can't. YouTube would probably disown me. I could <laughs> give an example of a current society that only teaches hate, and you see what it brings up on them. But anyhow, that's something else. Let's go back to more.
1: Right. <laughs> uh, I have to put back. you on Joe's politics show. <laughs>
2: Yeah, <laughs> you and guys you can, can go crazy. crazy. Oh, can yeah. <laughs>
1: um. So can, basically,
3: can
1: so when do you think? I mean, do you think there's a lot of talk right now about um, essentially? disaster are coming scientists are predicting okay you know we've just near we're we're close to disaster that this comet or this asteroid is just going close to us the sun is constantly putting out some pretty big solar flares do you think we're closer to falling into an ice age or catastrophic event or do you think that you know we really shouldn't be concerning ourselves with it so soon
2: well i think we're much closer to a an ice age than we are to a so-called global, you know, a, a global heat wave that's going to kill everything. Right. I mean, the the Malinkinovich, you can look it up, you know, Malinkinovich, I think it is Malinkinovich. Anyhow, look him up. Mm-hmm. Every 100,000 years. And it has to do with inclination of the Earth and how far out the Earth is from the sun. That it's all these cosmic things. Mm-hmm. That doesn't change. That can't change, you know,
3: short right. of
2: collisions or something. Uh and the thing about, to me, the thing about global warming and all the catastrophes, they talk about global warming, we're at the 1.5 or 2.0 centigrade and everything's gonna die and everything. Else. That's nonsense. And I've, I've demonstrated, and you can look up for yourself the NOAA charts, Greenland and and Vostok, the Russians did in in the Antarctica, mm-hmm. the ice cores, they uh, know this is the this is coldest it's been in a long time. Right. Uh, the, the dinky little thing about going up one or two degrees makes no difference at all. Right. And they, they've shown photographs of, of different cities around the world from 150 years ago and the sea level hasn't changed at all. What happens in the places where seas are flooding is because they're sinking like Venice. Venice right. is built with logs. It's right. Gonna sink yeah. Miami, Miami is built all over uh, all kind of uh, caverns and stuff and mm-hmm. They're going to sink. And so nothing's sinking and no islands in the Pacific have gone under. Right. And right. that's typically, if you read the international press about the uh, the IPCC that reports on this, even they don't say that. But the ignorant reporters and journalists who report on it. OK, it's not going to make a headline. It's like, hey, the world's doing OK. We're happy. That doesn't. You Know, sell anything, but if it bleeds, it leads. You know, they, they sell about television news, they say, right? Uh, right. you want catastrophes, you want, I mean, uh, hey, Al, Al Gore, you know, was talking about years ago, by the year 2000, 2005, there's not gonna be any ice anywhere. Well, guess what? You know, uh, it was snowing in Santa Fe last week. Uh, they had one of the biggest snows in the world up in Alaska recently. I mean, you know weather changes too many politicians who are not scientists want to make a career based on catastrophes. Now, science fiction writers are guilty of it too. I mean, uh, I've written one of my books is about a nanotech catastrophe, Silicon Blood. a kill off 700 million people in the book. It's uh, Catastrophe sells. It's more interesting to watch something about a dystopia than it is a utopia. Mm-hmm. You watch it TV show about how beautiful the food fu- is in the future, and there are no troubles. Well, if there's no troubles, mm-hmm. there's not a story, right? So, we have to learn how to tell different stories. But hey, if you have, for God's sake, that that's stupid movie, The Walking Dead, a catastrophe show that uh, every day, every week is a catastrophe, and everybody you know dies and comes back as a zombie. Just, uh,
1: do you think it's a cat- uh, catastrophic uh, I mean, thing? Do you think it's a survival I, thing?
2: Maybe it's a survival part of that. I don't. First of all, I have friends that write that stuff and they write all kind of military stuff and future warfare. I'm right. glad first of all, I'm glad that everybody makes a living at it and I don't disparage anybody reading anything. Almost anything at least. And uh but I'm I'm not in for it. I well, that's what I want a different kind of science fiction. I want the kind of science fiction I used to read when I was fourteen.
1: Mm-hmm. Simpler times, uh, maybe. Pardon? Not in simpler times, not so complicated.
2: Well, uh, the things that I used to read about when I was a kid are happening now, so Mm. (laughs) I have a whole bookshelf over to my left here, Robert Heinlein books. Right. His his book, Red Planet, was the first one I ever read back when I was nine years old. Wow. A barefoot kid on a dirt road in Arkansas, and my cousin picks up a book out of the county bookmobile and hands it to me, and... It's called Red Planet. He says, I know you like funny books about the future. Here's here's a book.
0: I, I love that. Well, we, I we know you like funny books. Funny books.
2: Comic, comic books. It's before What's science
0: called? fiction became political.
2: Well, no, actually it was Red Planet was about an American revolution on Mars. So it was not, it was, it was always political. All of Heinlein stuff was political, but. Wow. But there I was, I sat down under a tree and read that book that that afternoon and gave it to my cousin. So that's pretty good. Is there any more stuff like that? And of course, now I have a whole shelf full of Heinlein stuff that 50 books of his that, yeah, there was, there was stuff like that. And uh, over the years, well, reading science fiction drove me into becoming an engineer. Right. So at age 18, I started working at White Sands Missile Range as a Mm-hmm. telescope missile tracker right. and uh, then later on I worked on the ABM ant- anti ballistic missiles then I worked on secret stuff at some national labs then I worked at the White House science office but the thing that drove me in fact I think the thing that made my career for me was science fiction I had a science fictional mind I was very creative they used to come to me when they wanted creative solutions to things mm-hmm. I don't think I was that I wasn't the best engineer i knew by far i knew a lot of people smarter and better than me but i didn't know anybody who could think as weird as i do and right. uh they some people appreciated that and i did all right and uh,
3: right finally so,
2: uh and i made some contributions along the way i saved the taxpayer some money whatever mm-hmm. projects i was on and uh, but science fiction was always there to save me from insanity, I think.
1: Right. Well, it takes you away for a little while.
2: And uh, so most of those, I probably wrote a hundred short stories and most of them deal with technology and the humorous or disastrous effects or the applications, the wrong applications of them. Right. Then the other book, I don't know if you have that in there, called Valley of the Shaman I wrote, was was partially true. My son and I were visiting a, the Hamans Valley in New Mexico, which is northwest of Albuquerque, and uh, we were looking at the ruins of a Catholic church. But in the in the ruins of that Catholic church, there was a kiva, you know, the American Indian kiva, the holy place. And I said, "Here, that is in a church. That's that. There must be a story behind that." Then I heard, I swear, I heard a voice say write about this. And so I turned to my son I said, what did you say? He said, I didn't say anything. Are you hearing voices again, Dad? I said, oh, God. So (laughs) anyway, I wrote that book, Valley of the Shaman. And it's fictional. It's kind of a journey through uh, this valley and the guy has to return an ancient artifact to its original place. And uh, again, as I wrote it, it was like automatic writing. The valley exists. The the places I wrote in it don't really exist, except in my own mind. And uh, there are uh, so I don't know if you're interested. If you're interested in the weird stuff, I, I put it this way: early on, I read Charles Fort back when I was a young man. A friend gave me the books of Charles Fort as a gift in college. <coughs> Charles Fort wrote all kinds of strange things about strange events. And he says, you know, basically science looks in the bright corners, the bright lights and everything. But it, it be, but if you look in the dark corners, you might find things scuttling around there that nobody knows about. Right. I, I like that phrase. And I thought, well, okay, I'll, I know I'm not never gonna be the world's best engineer or, or scientist or anything like that. But if I look at places other people don't pay attention to, maybe I can find something. So I'm gonna look in those little dark corners, the mm-hmm. weird things. Right. So I've always been interested in anomalies, ancient civilizations, the paranormal, flying saucers. Uh, yeah, you, you know, definitely have to go on with haunting, Joe. <laughs> hauntings. Uh, and I've done, I've done, you know, I've done haunted house investigations
0: mm-hmm. in, a, uh-huh. in a
2: U.S. Army facility. I've done, I've observed all kind of psychic stuff going on I mean, hundreds of times. And mm-hmm. uh, uh-huh. and so I, I know precognition is real, this occurred. I know telepathy is real, this occurred. I know PK, somebody starting a fire or an accident, when they say it's going to happen, and it happened. I've seen that happen. And uh, So mm. I always would like to take these really bright scientists and engineers that I know and fund them and change their minds and make them start looking at these things.
3: Right. Look at you, right?
2: There's no telling what we can find. I mean, I have a friend who taught remote viewing and he also taught how to bend things with your mind. And He showed mm-hmm. me all these spoons and knives and stuff that he had, uh, like telekinesis twisted and everything. And uh, I thought, well, if there's Lynn, if, if that's real, and it obviously it's real because he's done it hundreds of times, right. There's got to be some kind of physical force that causes that, and I would like for scientists to study that, see what it is, and maybe we could mechanize it. Then we could apply it and use it for uh, factories and stuff. And right. I'm an engineer. It'd be nice to have a machine that you push a button and it poof something comes out. Well, 3D printing is close to that, but uh, right, it's not right. there yet. Right. So you' well, there's so many things that we should be studying that we're ignored. And Charles Fort called them his books, the book of the damned, the book of the damned. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about facts that are damned. Right. The facts are real. They're there. You're just damned because everybody refuses to look at them. They refuse to study them. They refuse to research them. And uh, I was reading something on that about Charles Fort today, the way he approached things. It was quite interesting that uh, all the weird stuff is all in one thing as far as I'm concerned. There's nothing weird. There's not, I don't believe in supernatural. It's just things we don't understand yet. It's strangeness.
1: We, it's just something that's choose, out of the norm.
2: Things we choose to ignore.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Excuse me. I got a drink. Uh, Sometimes I, I
0: wonder if you know they are studying this. We just don't know about it. Well, CIA
1: studied all kinds of it, so there's definitely yeah. an interest.
0: But I, well, I, I mean, I even though they've said no, we ha- you know we have no use for this, I believe that it's still continued.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I won't say who. Excuse me. <laughs> I, I know I know some people in CIA that I talk right. to about weird things, and this one lady I talked to in DC. Uh, this has been, gosh, eight or ten years ago. She says, "I know, Arlen." Uh, First of all, I, had a, I founded a science fiction think tank called Sigma, and we met with CIA and a bunch of other people just to share ideas and things. And a couple of people we kind of resonated with. And this one lady talked to me, she said, I know you're interested in weird things. She said, would you believe that the CIA investigated a haunted house? I said, I'll believe anything now. <laughs> said, she said, well, what happened was there was this Congresswoman and I won't mention who it was. But uh, she uh, swore that this one house was haunted and demanded that the CIA look into it with all the instruments and stuff. And so we did. Wow. I said, I said, did you find anything? She said, nope. She says, but I'll uh, I'll put you in touch with somebody who's interested in this stuff, but she never did. And uh, But I thought, that's cool. That's, that's one thing I'm, I approve of. I mean, I I met all kinds of people over the years, especially when I worked at the White House, who worked. For the agency, mm-hmm. the, the cards they the cards they gave you always had something else on them. So I wrote down CIA. One guy I said, "Do not write that on there." I bought, "This is company." I'm engineering yeah. company, mm. <clears throat> right? And I talked. I talked to one guy. <clears throat> he used to be well known, but uh, talked to him about UFOs mm. <clears throat> in, in 1960. About a week after my first son was born. There was a UFO sighting in Las Cruces, New Mexico, where I was going to school. And if things had been a little bit different, I would have been there. I was a missile tracker, and we had to catch a bus to White Sands two and a half hours before the scheduled shoot. So we'd be sure to get there, check in, pick a truck, and drive out to the tracking station. So we were due to be picked up by an army bus at 3.30 in the morning this one day at the bottom of this hill next to a uh, place called Three Crosses Hill in Las Cruces. And there are three crosses up there the town is named after. And uh, there was a golf course up there. Well, at 3.30 that morning, a couple of cops were driving by and they saw a glowing light at the top of that hill, a big glowing light, and they were afraid that something had crashed. So they got out of the car and scrambled up the side of this little mesa probably 20 feet high. And they saw a big green glowing object that lifted up dripping green flame and shot out over the mountains to the east over the Oregon mountains. It was spotted by people at White Sands that night and security guards at Holloman Air Force Base. And the Holloman Air Force Public Information Office the next day said it was probably a meteorite. Now, I never heard of a meteorite that took off and went over the mountains took off the ground and went up but anyhow the thing was at the last minute that day before we were going home they canceled the shoot that morning so the whole group of us didn't have to show up at work so we were not there at that bus stop at 3:30 in the morning 3:30 in the morning is when that UFO sighting occurred i just can imagine now if it had been a whole busload of white sands people like 50 people there at the bottom of that thing and we saw it take off that would have been quite deciding but the shoot was canceled and we we just were not there but pure chance as about like, that was like, like uh, I, have a, I have a newspaper but <clears throat> September 1960 and they have a says their comments on Chris's UFO um. where in there they they said they they said probably a meteorite (laughs) Is
0: that a go-to line for them
2: (laughs) so i asked this one cia guy i met at a party about that i knew he was interested in it i said he said what bothers you about that and so it bothers me it wasn't investigated he said just because you don't know anything about it doesn't mean it wasn't investigated Mm -hmm. i said okay thank you so i figured they did investigate it now uh But that that was not his job description. His job description was much more mundane. I think about agriculture in Afghanistan or something like that. Mm. But mm. I, with all the recent revelations about UFOs, the Grush testimony before Congress back in July, and the SOL conference, the SOL conference at Stanford last weekend, it looks like it might be coming to a head. I'm interested in UFOs because I was 10 years old in Arkansas one night talking to my mother and a preacher in the front yard, and I saw a light shoot across the sky. I thought it was a moon, so it really, really scared me. It was the size and shape and the color and brightness of the moon, but it went sinusoidal across the sky like like that. And uh, so I've believed in strange things in the sky ever since... Ever since that night, I was ten, and uh,
0: especially when you witness it,
2: we photographed some something strange at White Sands one time from our telescope, and uh, I won't say who it was. But if I, if my friend happened to be watching the show, he was there. He and I photographed. That he could call in and tell you about it. But uh, mm-hmm. we did that, and then there have been so many thousands of reports, hundreds thousands of reports that uh, I did a. Uh, an article 1980 for this book encyclopedia of ufos
1: oh my goodness wow oh Uh, yeah
2: and then i I did a follow-on in the article in 19 or i guess 1999 or maybe it was for this book yeah and uh they asked our opinions of what ufos were and i said well i think they're actually physical craft from other worlds that are capable of uh, advanced means of propulsion and materialization. And when we finally do figure out what they are, or we finally know what they are, we have to decide whether it was worth knowing or we wish we didn't know. <laughs> or uh it might be yeah. something else. And, yeah. And, and from what I'm reading, some people lately are saying, it might be that... <laughs> You don't really want to know
0: that's a good point though
2: yeah i mean it, the uh one of the people i was reading things about the uh the soul sol institute conference at stanford last weekend and they had people like Jacques shock and other people there and Maybe. i met him. i met him before i met over the years i met stan freeman Jacques valet and uh, all kind of people in the ufo business i've re I investigated a few and uh mm. Wrote a lot of articles and stories about them. And uh, mm-hmm. I do believe that, well, I was interviewed by a guy on radio a couple years ago. He said, well, what do you think? How come they don't just land and talk to us? I said, well, I'll repeat what Stanton Friedman said. You know, I don't try to talk to the squirrels in my backyard. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: and I Oh, saw, boy.
1: <laughs>
2: Michio, Michio Kaku had a even better one than that. And I've used it. Actually, I'd, I'd used it in a story before, but he said, "If you have a civilization that's millions or billions of years older than we are, we might not be any better than ants to them, and we don't try to talk to ants."
0: Mm, and, right, uh, them. Right.
2: That that could be. It could be.
1: Uh, right. Well, uh, I, it, I. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, we're just coming up onto the top of the hour, so I hate to have to cut the conversation, but we've got five minutes. So, oh, oh, it was a pleasure. Do you have something coming up that you want to share with everyone? Like, maybe promote yourself? Are you writing another book? Are you planning another trip? Excuse
2: me for allergies. The, the, The Thaw trilogy, Thaw, Melt, and Flow, is out an ebook right now on Amazon ebook form only but very mm-hmm. shortly hopefully within weeks a week or two it'll be out they will all be available in the paperback and hardback excellent excellent and so, and just in time for christmas uh mm-hmm. hardback for your friends uh, is always good right uh, and can, hardbacks and you can see uh,
0: I love them <laughs>
1: there we go and so, uh, so is that is that the end for this trilogy, or are you going to keep going?
2: I think I'll probably do a, a prequel next to tell how how <clears throat> how Motherland was established, why it's run by women, and how they got right. that magic air, and the, right. what happened to the city of Shadowfall, why it was deserted when they finally came across it, and but right. I have to wait for the story to come. I don't make it up. I have to just read it. and try to transcribe yeah. what occurs but uh, yeah I'll, I'll have another I have another book coming out from a thing called three Ravens press it's called paradox lost it's a time travel a very screwy time travel story Wow when you can do time travel back and forth it in fact I had to make a chart to keep track of who the heck was doing what <laughs> right <laughs> but again, it was it was a story and right. part, of it, part of it was published in Analog many years ago, too.
3: Right, and, uh, right,
2: it takes place near a pyramid in Mexico near Chichen Itza.
1: Right, you can't go wrong with time travel, it, no, leaves, I, it leaves so much to be explored. You can go in so many directions with it. Yeah, one
2: of, my, one of my favorites is Alternate the History. That's my mind candy anymore. What I don't want to think, I like to read Alternate the History, right? And uh, right. there are lots. Good books out there about that. So, anyhow, I wandered all over the place, but uh, thanks for having me on. I appreciate oh, it. Oh, thank it you. Pleasure.
1: Pleasure. It was a pleasure. Thank, thank you for sharing part of your Thanksgiving with us.
0: Yeah. Oh, you're quite
2: welcome. Uh, my wife's waiting for me in the other room now. She might be watching this. I don't know.
0: Right. Tell her, tell her happy Thanksgiving from us and thank you for sharing you with us tonight and our audience. <laughs> and congratulations. Thank you. And congratulations. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yes.
2: And uh, if you ever want to delve deeper into any other things, just let me know. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. We shall. And thank you for tuning in with us tonight.
2: My pleasure. Thank you very much. Look forward to it again someday.
1: Okay. Thank you, Arlen. Good night. Good night.
2: Bye-bye.
1: Bye now. Well, we've come to the end of another very interesting segment on the outer realm, very new for us and, you know, went into many different directions, which was super informative and interesting. So thank you, Dr. Arlen Andrews Sr. for sharing, again, your Thanksgiving with us. Also, big thank you to all of you who tuned into the chat room. Always nice to see everybody so interactive. And we were sort of bouncing around tonight, so we didn't put up as many comments. Um, We wanted to give our guests as much time to speak as possible. So, again, thank you, Folgers Coffee. Thank you, Justin Snicker, a.k.a. Dr. Snick, the Sonic Surgeon. Thank you, Steve McGinnis. And, guys, again, if you like what you see, please like, subscribe, share, follow, whatever the case may be. We really appreciate you uh, for doing so. Next week, we welcome back our dear friend, Preston Dennett. He's going to be sharing more tales of UFOs and extraterrestrial contact, as well as a scoop on his newest book that's coming up, or possibly books. Preston just pumps them right out. (laughs) Thursday night, we welcome the return of Daniel and Teresa Duke, the great-grandchildren of Jesse James, And they're going to be discussing Jesse's connection to the Knights Templar in America, Treasure, and a whole lot more. They were awesome to have on the show the last time and looking forward to having them on the show this time. So happy Thanksgiving to those of you in the U.S. who may still be indulging in dessert or you know, some of the crazy shopping frenzies that are coming up over the weekend. Be safe out there and we shall see you all next week. Have a great weekend and good night.